You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ Family of Churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. It's just life happens, same speed, but different vision. Because there's other times when you're walking through life and you're not connected to the source and it's just like tunnel vision, man. Get to the next thing. People are obstacles sometimes, distractions, man. Just always. And it's it's two different. Go down to the start video right there. And so prayerfully, you're coming into the place where you're starting to notice him more. And I love what Steve said. He said, "Man, don't be beating on yourself if this thing hadn't gone exact. There ain't no textbook way to do this thing. It happens as it happens. And so miracles don't take time." How long does it take for your life to change? Think about that. How long does it take for your life to change? A minute. (laughs) That's the only way it ever happens. Life always changes in a minute. The the question is, how long is it going to take you to get to your minute? Boom, when everything changes. So don't quit five minutes before the miracle happens. And this is is Miracle Search, a quest we're on. I wanted to start off, and uh, I think I can go ahead and do this. Let's see if it works. I'm gonna share. Somebody tell me if, if I'm up up and ready. Is that, is that me? Can everybody see me? Is that a yeah? Slideshow. Okay. Val, nod at me if, if we're good. Haha, <laughs> there you go. I'm gonna like I can't hear anybody. I can just see little thumbnails and so I'm always encouraged if you guys kind of move around a little bit. So I can see. Y'all remember the eight? The original eight? This is the little church that God gave me, and this was their baptism day. The only one that's home, um, Nick, he's home, and he's doing pretty good. He's had his times, but it's pretty tough. Little Chewy <laughs> right there, tiny little beautiful guy, one of the most spiritual men I've ever known. He's home, had to go back to Mexico. Uh, the rest of the brothers are still in. Brother's been in about 25 years. This brother's been in about probably 25 to 30 years. Big Mo, he's been waiting to get out for a long, long time. And he's he's a beautiful, beautiful, righteous man. These guys changed my life. They got baptized on June 10th, 2010. So tomorrow is their birthday. And it's also the birthday of this ministry that God blessed me with. And... Tonight, I want to show you the fruit that they have borne. You reap what you sow. We ask for one thing. God says, I'll do just immeasurably more than you can even ask. Ask me. Okay, that, that's good. Now, imagine more. Just go ahead and let your imagination go. What could happen? And now, try to just blow your mind with the impossible if everything just happened. All right, now try to get a glimpse of that. And he says, I can do a whole lot more than that. And so this, this, this bold 40 day journey is about praying prayers that scare you a little bit because you're, you're a little bit concerned you're going to get your heart broken. These brothers right here, they live in a place where the heart breaks every day and they learn not to hope anymore, not to dream anymore, not to expect anything. You don't borrow from anybody. You don't loan anything. You hustle and they live life in a place where nobody wants to be. And these brothers, they came together and we shared time. All I did was I, I went in, I wanted to make some friends, and I wanted to, you know, maybe help some some brothers behind the wire, not knowing that God was sending me there for them to help me. 
because there was some work that needed to be done. This morning, this is where I was, and uh, this is, I'll let you in on a little bit more of the movement, the Power Peace movement, which turns 11 tomorrow. This is a football team in Atlanta called Milton High School. Tomorrow we kick off, I mean, today we kicked off our Protect the Dream program. And so what we do is we take, in this case, three different schools, rival schools. They choose their most influential leaders, the ones that they're counting on. Um, this team, we won a state championship uh, three years ago. I'm actually wearing the ring in that picture because I brought it to show the guys that weren't part of that team. And they dream a big dream, and then we teach them how to protect that dream. And from dream killers like irresponsible social media, drug and alcohol abuse, disrespect of authorities, unhealthy relationships, hanging with the haters and bullying, objectifying classmates, the things that can crush a dream, and we teach them to protect the dream. And then we reward everything, celebrate everything. We have a huge event at the end of the, the competition, and the brothers get up and they make presentations. We choose a one player of all the teams that is the, the standout character athlete, and it's just this beautiful program we do in the summertime to prepare to launch pop clubs in our schools in the fall. A pop club is where we pull from athletes, cheerleaders, performing arts, ROTC, student government, and marching band, breakfast club, rivals. You know, my thing started in prisons, and we bring prison rivals together, prison gangs together to create better time. And it helps them learn that when I do good things, good things happen to me, and that I can survive and live in a place of my enemy without violence. And everywhere we went, the brothers kept saying, when are you going to take it to the kids? you got to take it to the kids, kid. And I kind of obeyed the, <laughs> their wishes. I want to show you what happened from it. Look at that beautiful group of people. You see Roots. The kids love Roots. Uh, that's the Kennesaw State University basketball team, man. I got to ride with them for two seasons. They love some Roots. They wanted him on the bench. Uh, there's Roots with a beautiful basketball team in Marietta, Georgia, part of the pop movement. Uh, there's some beautiful Challenged kids, angel kids, all these kids have a reason to, to maybe be in a special school that, that helps them at their own pace. They're like, it's, it's hanging out with angels. That's a tough group of brothers up in Har uh, Benton Harbor, Michigan, toughest school I ever did my thing in. 30% graduation rate. They got officers on every hall. They lock the school doors. They expel kids. Kids break back in because they got nothing else to do. And they just roam the halls. <laughs> it's the craziest thing. And yet they got inspired. That's one of our state championship football teams. Roots has three state championships. We've worked with eight programs over the past five years. Three of them have won state championships, which has been awesome. There's another one of our state championship pop squads. Ah, that's just some beautiful, beautiful people. Our Tijuana pop squad. Man, I went down to Tijuana so many times in 2016 and 17. I think I crossed that border about 40 times, and those beautiful people changed my life. They're so much more joyful and hospitable. They celebrate everything. They, they take care of, of strangers. They, they taught me what love looks like. <laughs> That's when uh, our third team, that was the first team that won the championship, and they're all pointing at my ring they just gave us. That was a great day. Just another one of our beautiful groups. See, they're doing one of our books called Protect the Dream. Ah, even cheerleaders getting on the, the peace movement. Uh, I think that's Selma, Alabama. We took the, the 
pop movement went to Selma, Alabama, very tough city. Look at that beautiful crew right there. You get to hang out with kids and stay young. I mean, I get to stay young. That guy right there holding roots, he's a starting quarterback at Tennessee. <laughs> he broke all the records at that school. He's one of our pop captains. That's a pop club at one of our schools here, not too far from where I am. So that that's the club. It's a student organization, and they start trying to, to model behavior so that acceptance and compassion and inclusion is school culture instead of the haters. That's out in Kansas, a beautiful middle school that I got to do right next to one of the prisons that I was doing. Ah, uh, there's my, I love that, that kid holding that, that he, I think he's an angel. I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but I think he's an angel. And I'm not even lying. That's one of our graduations where they're getting their certificates and they've successfully, theirs is 40 days of power. And so we have 40 days of power for the schools, 40 days of prayer for the churches and 40 days of freedom for the, the jails and the prisons. That's another one of our football teams. Ah, uh, the Tijuana crew. That's a cartel control field right there, man. That was a, that was a wild day. Beautiful, beautiful people. I don't remember. Michigan. I honestly don't remember where that was. Tampa, Florida. The movement just kept spreading all the way to India. Everybody wants peace. Down to Guatemala wearing our T-shirts. Hope is the new dope. Uh, Michigan. <laughs> the distinguished gentlemen is what that group is called. <laughs> Oh, my little Nino. See how they're all wearing the wristband? I am the power of peace. Uh, I don't know where that was, but it was fun. Even Christian schools getting involved in the whole thing. Oh, my little pop squad in Guatemala. More distinguished gentlemen <laughs> down in Tijuana. They threw me as high as they could throw me. And I can't remember, but I remember how that felt. I mean, look at the joy. Those are tough kids in very tough situations, and yet everybody wants peace <laughs> down in South Africa. I don't know where that was or that. And lastly, we took some boys that had never been out of Atlanta all the way to the White House and started teaching these kids that they could dream great big dreams. I just wanted to give you a um, a quick little, just a peek into what the Holy Spirit can do with one act. I want to go to prison to just visit with some guys. That's it. If you ever let me preach again, I'll go to them. That's all it was. Just make a friend. Be kind. Make a friend. That's all I wanted to do. And eight brothers got baptized. It became a 100 prisons and 10,000 inmates and 10,000 kids. And all that joy and those kids are imitating the brothers behind the wire. And I promised them that if they take a stand and become peacemakers, that I would not forget them. And I go out and preach to the kids. And that's exactly how this thing moved. And I always want to give those brothers their due because they changed my life. And so I'll, I'll, I'll keep telling their story. But look at what those are just a few of the pictures that I chose today. I mean, there there's literally probably a thousand of them. And it's just kids that are waking up, and it all started with these eight brothers, and their spiritual birthday is tomorrow. Um, thank you for in, indulging me in that. I'm going to jump right into Mark 8. It's our week five discussion, and, you know, it's after day 35. It says in Mark 8, 22, they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. 
He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were open. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't even go into the village. This is a fascinating scripture. Have you ever wondered what's up with this miracle that's different than all the other miracles? It's like, was was Jesus kind of just a little disconnected that day? You know, was there some kind of block in his flow? You know, was the power not present to heal that day? Because here comes another blind man. And see, this whole project is about vision. It's about removing the scales. It's Saul seeing the movement as something that needed to be destroyed through his conviction and his passion and his righteousness legalistically. And he was bent and determined on doing that. And then all of a sudden, Ananias comes and places his hands on him and scales fall from his eyes. And he looks up and he sees the kingdom of God. And he chases it and he preaches it until they take his head off. It's Why is it that so many stories are about blind people? Jesus seems to have a special love for the blind. And all of us have been there. And it's not like, you know, amazing grace. I was blind, but now I see, man, coming out of the waters, you know. I mean, I get that. But I'm talking about, for me, what, 32 years later, and a whole bunch of battles and a whole bunch of L's and still standing. <laughs> but it's not like I thought it was going to be. So what do you see? Especially those who have been around for a minute. He says, do you see anything? So he goes to the blind man. And once again, Jesus is going to get really personal. I want to ask somebody out there that really has been the one that's been like diligent, man. I'm going to do this deal. Has it gotten harder for you? I mean, you feel like you're in the battle? Because, man, sometimes the battle intensifies and there's bullets flying. And that scripture, take captive every thought and make it obedient, is a full-time job. I'm talking about when the thoughts are flying and things are zooming and you're a little down or you're a little anxious or you're fearful as you're looking forward to something that might happen. Or you're sad about something back there that you can't change. And you're outside of the present moment. And it's just not working. And I can't see you. I mean, the whole reason that I put this thing together was not for you. I didn't call Tony Mohan and say, hey, bro, I want to I wanna write a book. <laughs> it was, no, what I was doing, I decided just to go ahead and make it into something. And the reason that I put it together for myself was because I had to. Like, I had to. I don't have a choice. I'm the kind of person that I can't I can't take a month off and just say, well, how you been doing? Ah, I kind of fell out for a month. I'm back now. I'm not like that. I'm like, I, I got to I've got to put in the work. And that's because of some of the damage I've done in the past and, and some of the ways that I'm wired up in my brain and the way he fascinatingly, mysteriously knit me together in my mother's womb. You know, this brain of mine, it works in a certain way and I got to manage it. And so this process helps me manage the noise. It helps me navigate through the storms and it helps me see him because if I don't see him, I get discouraged. 
And so I created games to play and ways that I could start to look for him and find him when I couldn't see. And what I'm praying is that somebody out there is starting to see. And maybe it's not like, man, I can see him like like just after I was baptized. No, I'm saying that you're starting to see him in a way that you never have before. Because that's what I want. I don't want this to be my best day. It's cool for me to be the, the best day, but not going forward. I want I want a whole lot more best days and a whole lot more W's. You know, I'm winning more than I'm losing. But man, the L's hurt. And it's been one of those seasons. So if you're in the battle and you're frustrated or you're discouraged or you're a little guilty because you come on here and everybody's like, woo, 40 days of prayer. And, and you're just like, you feel bad. Man, take heart. It's a battle. Pain is necessary. Pain is necessary. It's not just a part of life. It is a really powerful motivator. It is a great teacher. (laughs) I mean, pain will teach you some things. So don't waste your pain. Don't do like I did. I avoided it. I medicated it. I resisted it. And I escaped from it. It's like pain was the enemy and pain was what I needed. And a dear friend of mine, Sunny Sessions, sitting in a car. I'm at the bottom. Ain't got no hope. I'm sitting there with my best friend. The only guy. I feel like he's my only die, ride or die. He's it. He's like a father to me. And I'm telling him, bro, I'm, I'm, I'm slipping. I can't. I don't know if I can do it anymore. And he said, bro, and I want you to hear me on this. He said, embrace your pain. Let it do its work. And man, I didn't want to hear that. Cause that time, after that time, I was getting ready to go through some and you guys are too. It's called life. And it's like if we keep running from pain and keep focused on fear, I've been there. Man, we're going to keep just being beat up and beat down. But when you go ahead and stand up and say, man, pain is my friend. I'm not choosing it, but when it comes to me, I will not waste it. Don't waste your pain. Pain is, is believe it or not, is some of the good stuff. When we look back, <laughs> we're going to see that those pain points. Oh, my gosh. It's like this guy. I want to see, but I don't want you to touch me. <laughs> Jesus, why don't you do one of those lobs, you know, like you did for the centurion? Like, you don't got to come to my house. Why don't you just gonna say the word and I'll be healed? And Jesus said, no, some don't come out like that. I got to touch you, son. He said he put his hands on. If somebody puts their hands on you, (laughs) what's that mean? And then it says he spit. Okay, he's in a creation mode now. And he touches the man's eyes. And then he asks a very important question. Do you see anything? Why did he ask? It was all some part of some plan. Jesus wasn't having an off day. He didn't take the day off. Something about this was going to require a second touch. The first touch, do you see anything? He says, well, kind of. But it's kind of like people, but they're, they look like trees walking around. And so Jesus, he gives him exactly what he needs. Now he's going to touch him where it hurts. It's where his pain lives. We all got that. We got spots, man, where we hide our pain. And if we avoid it and we don't look at it and we don't get light on it, it becomes a very dark spot. 
and it keeps you. It's a bushel that's over that light, and it's the wounds. It's the thing that we're afraid to. I don't know if I'm preaching to anybody. I'm telling my story. It's like there were parts I did not want to look at. It was too hard. And see, this process was going to get me to force. It was going. I'm going to face some fear. And I know tonight's a little bit heavy, but I don't get you guys for a whole bunch more weeks. And so I feel like I just got to share what's on my heart. Jesus touches him. Why the second touch? I think this guy had some some woundedness about his blindness. Have you ever picked up on the fact that he probably was not born blind? <laughs> if he was, how would he know what trees or humans look like? But the fact that he said, yeah, they're, they look like people, but they're more like trees. I think this guy lost his sight, and I think it crushed him. And he was now in darkness for the rest of his life and not able to have what he had. Everything was good, and I'm just speculating. But it's like, man, when you've had everything and you, your dream comes true and you found your purpose and you're exercising your gift, and then you blow it all, boom, and your life changed. You feel like you're in the darkness. That's where this man was, and he needed a second touch. You see, sometimes we get to the point in life where the same old tricks don't work anymore. You might be having the same quiet times you had 10 years ago, but today is not 10 years ago. Life has changed a lot. If you're married, you've been through some things. If you have some kids, as they grow older, they're bigger problems. You might have been through some health things. You might have been through some money things. You might have been through some divorce things, addiction things. Just life has happened to all of us. And sometimes we need a second touch. I mean, can we really expect our lives to change if we don't change the way we think? And if we don't change the way we, we do things, sometimes you got to shake it up. There's nothing magic about this book. It's just shaking it up a bit. Man, try hitting your knees first. You'll be amazed what it does. Try writing down your prayers real specific and look at them every day. Watch what happens. Man, go out and look for evidence of God. And when you see it, write it down and give him a wink and, and see what that does for you. You know, start taking steps toward what you're asking God to do for you and watch how it puts your faith on steroids. This is just one way to shake things up a little bit in your life so that you begin to see God again. Because religion, as much as we don't want to be religious, we do a lot of things over and over and over for him. And they're not bad things. They're good things. We congregate. We read the word. We pray. We give, we serve, we disciple, we love and take care of. We have routines, and routines are a very, very important part of life. But the danger is we can slowly become blind to what God is doing. And all we see is our little church, and we don't see people outside. That's a danger, and I've been on both sides. I was in the ministry for a long time inside the church. And then I was, boom, just out in the world, but wasn't done preaching, but didn't have a church, didn't have a family. And I needed a second touch. I think God, I fell in love with him at 25. And then I found the father through him. I always needed a dad. I lost my dad when I was young. And then I found the church, the kingdom, right? 
And then all of it kind of just got melded into one and the church was him. And, and I just, it got, the world got so small and it was us and everybody else. And then all of a sudden I was everybody else and I was out there and I started to see people differently. And I think God said, you're going to need a second touch because of what I want to do. If you want me to use you, you gotta let me touch you where it hurts. He sent me to death row. <laughs> death row is a fascinating place. Um, I've served on death row in Louisiana and in Alabama. And the first time I went to the, the row in, in Alabama, it's like nothing I've ever seen before. Most death rows are one man, one eight by 10. He's in there 23 hours a day, one hour outside in a cage. He gets two showers a week. He eats in his cell and he really is by himself for the rest of his life. There's a TV outside on the other side of the bars. He's got a TV he can watch and he waits for a call that he wishes would never come. It takes about 20 years to kill somebody because you get three appeals. I've lost three friends on death row. It changes your opinion about the death penalty when a friend dies. You start looking at it differently. See, when you get outside of the church and you start going places that you've never been before and serving with people that you've never served with before and, and people that don't look like you or vote like you or think like you or believe like you, and you're working with Muslims and you're learning why they do what they do, and you're, you're, you're working with beautiful people in these African tribes that are just incredible and they don't believe what you do, but you become them and you start seeing through their eyes. And the world kind of opens up and you see people, you begin to see them. And then hopefully you begin to feel them. And if you get close enough, you can become them. And that was the secret that Paul had. I have become all things to all men so that I might win some. All I wanted to do was go make a friend out of prison. That was it. And God said, no, you said you would go to the least of these. He said, I heard your prayer. <laughs> he said it back to me. Did you not say, if you, if I let you preach again, you'll go to the harassed and helpless. Well, we got to make that happen. I, I'm glad you met one friend, but we got work to do. And so I met a couple friends on death row. You know, I came to this crazy conviction. <laughs> and it was, maybe I'm put on this planet not just to show my kids how to live but to show them how to die. that I didn't get to have that. Like to, to show somebody not just how to live, but how to die. These men, I walk into this death row in Alabama, and it's 22 men. There's 24, 12 cells on the top, 12 on the bottom, a common shower in the middle, and some tables. This death row, the warden, is a little more humane, and he lets all these guys come out of their cells. There's a couple that they don't get to come out. They just can't. But about 20 of them can. And they're this little misfit band of brothers. You ought to see them. And it's, it's, it's not what you would think. The people, some of them have some problems, but they're people. We brought in just a 
feast. I'm talking about hams and turkeys and chickens and cakes and pies. I mean, it was Thanksgiving, big trays. They ate like kings. You talk about when Jesus said, hey, when you throw a party, invite all the regular people, the common folk. Man, when you get to feed a feast to a bunch of brothers that are condemned to die, that the hated and feared and forgotten, it will change you. You'll never forget it. And so that day, the first time I came in, a brother comes up to me. I ain't met anybody yet. They're all wearing white. We've got some volunteers. I'm just there to make some friends. The brother comes up to me. His name's Donald, but they call him Psycho. Psycho happens to be a brother of less color. He's got shaved head. He's got some artwork on his face. Doesn't have much in the way of teeth. And he's one of those brothers that gets way too close. <laughs> And, you know, he's, he's kind of a little jumpy guy. And he's just, when you get to know him, you, you know, you understand him. But this is the first time I've ever seen a brother. And he walks up and he says, Mr. Kitt. And I said, yes, sir. He said, uh, I want to talk to you. I didn't know him. But I don't know if he knew me. And I said, all right, Donald, you know, what you, you know, what you want to talk about? And he said, no, I don't want to talk right here. I want to talk over there. And I said, okay. <laughs> and I followed Donald psycho the double murderer over to a place of his choosing away from the witnesses so we can talk underneath these stairs so imagine me and psycho under the stairs sounds like a book chapter doesn't it (laughs) it is and so there's this big stairs and and it's dark under there man and he's like he's way too close i can smell his breath and i'm looking around to see if the witnesses can see me and they cannot and so i'm about to have my talk with psycho and he said first of all preacher I want you to know I did what they said I did, and I deserve what's coming to me. He said, but one thing I want, I want to get right with him before they take me. And his eyes began to fill with tears, and tears ran over his teardrop tattoos, and his lip began to quiver, and he said, I'll never forget one of the most powerful questions that I think can be asked is about to be asked of me. He said, here's my question, preacher. Can your God save a man like me? A death row inmate begging to know, is your God such a God of grace that he could forgive a man like me, the worst man? Now, they don't teach you how to answer this question in seminary. This one is like real. We're under the stairs, and I didn't have to think. It leapt out of me. And I said, yes, Donald. And he said, how do you know? Always be prepared to give an answer. And I said, with tears in my eyes, because he saved a drunken, fallen preacher like me. If he can do it for me, man, you know how many people I heard, bro? I said, he can do it for you, too. And for the first time in my life, man, I wasn't trying to convince somebody about salvation or trying to explain something or help somebody. It was just like, yes, it can happen for you. He's still alive. They don't let water in that prison. They're not going to fill up a big tub. It's one of those age-old questions. Can your God save a man like me? What if he can't be baptized and he wants to? All the little things we do in little Bible talks. This was real. I've got the most beautiful little jewelry chest in there. And he made it for me. 
not psycho, dominant. He expressed his love with homemade tools and old wood, and he made this beautiful box for my wife. That's the man on death row. Can your God save a man like him? When you sing Amazing Grace, how amazing is it? Is it just amazing if it fits in a box and it does the way that we've always seen it done? Because if you get outside of the church and you start preaching to the world, not just to the converted, and I ain't preaching at anybody. I'm talking about in general. If you want to go preach the word outside of the church and you go not just to the least of these to others, you're going to see things that you don't see in the church. You're going to encounter things that we have not come up for a study on. It's real life. Jesus' ministry is messy. Religion is tidy. His is uncomfortable. Religion is cozy. His is unpredictable. Religion is easy to measure. We can count it. We can measure it. See, Jesus is wild, wild west, just one person at a time. A psycho becomes Donald. (laughs) That sounds like the Bible. Psycho becomes Donald. It's in his right mind. How do you not change? That is the least of the least of these. Is the death row brother. Can you imagine fellowshipping with him one day? (laughs) But here's what I'll leave you with, as if this hasn't been heavy enough. There's another man on that road. His name's David. David came in when he was young. So his very, very bad day happened in his early 20s. He'd been on that road about 20 years when I met him. And I met him that first day that I went in. And the brothers, the 20 brothers, they were having a memorial for a brother who had been executed the week before named John. And they were, I come in and I'm like, I'm expecting this death row, you know, looking through the glass and these men just staring at me. And instead, I, I, I happened upon this group of brothers and they're crying because one of their guys got taken out the week before. You don't see that on Amazon. Nobody knows about these things. There's things going out there that will blow your mind if you get out there. Be kind. Make friends. How do you work with a death row inmate? You make friends with a death row inmate. You become him. You get close enough to him. To learn from him. Man, he's got scars I don't know about. He's got, uh, talk about a mind, a strong, I mean, how do you survive it? I could learn from him. Maybe I'm supposed to teach my kids how to die. So David got his call. And he knew it was coming. And now all of a sudden he had a time and a date when his life would end. And he would meet his maker. Can you imagine how it would change your life if you had an appointment to die? His day came. When he came into prison on death row, they said he was very distant and he just stuck to himself. He's kind of an angry guy. Didn't mess with anybody. Just didn't want to hear from nobody. He wouldn't connect with anybody. But over 20 years on the row, he began to get close to this little band of brothers. And there was a spiritual leader. We lost him, too. And and he was he died of emphysema on death row. But he was there. He was their leader. They loved him. 
and they had Bible studies together. They would encourage one another. They would lose a brother every now and then, but they were this misfit, ragtag little brother group of least of these hated men. Not much violence on the road. Why? Because they're all going to the same place. And they're all going to end up where David go that night. I've laid down on a gurney. I wanted to feel what it felt like. I felt the straps. I laid down. I've sat in that chair. I wanted to try to become. <laughs> How am I going to sit down with a guy? I can't even, you can't even fathom what that would be like, but I don't know. Lay down and feel it. And so that night, <laughs> it was his time. But see, the David I met was after he had changed. And he had become this gentle, humble brother to the other guys. He would study with guys and he would encourage guys. And over that 20 horrible years on death row, the fellowship of people coming in to see him changed him. There's a bunch of old men that are just country old men from who knows what denomination that have been going to that prison for 30 years to visit with men that nobody cares about. And their love for him changed him. And he began to care about his brothers. So I I wasn't at the execution, but a friend of mine was. And the time came. It was 7 o'clock. As he was laid on the gurney, I stood up and got behind a podium to do a speech. And as I'm doing my introductory remarks and I'm thinking about my man David in five minutes is going to meet his maker I can't focus on my job. I'm supposed to be talking to some banquet to a bunch of athletes. And I'm thinking about David as he's laid down. Then they pull the curtain back and the witnesses on the other side of the uh, the glass, the family of the victim, media, politician or two. It's the viewing room. And they see David and he's there. Now, The warden has to perform these things, and he's seen all types of reactions. Sometimes they lose bodily functions. Other times they weep and they cry. Other times they scream or they beg. You don't know how you're going to respond at the moment of your death. None of us do. It's the unknown. And so David is there, and he's peaceful. It's just there's a peace about him. And he's literally seconds away. The warden comes into the room. And he's troubled. This isn't something that a warden never wants to do. And yet it's time for him to have to do it. And he's physically, he, he's visibly troubled. And he looks at David and think about all the faces that he has seen and, and the reactions and the responses. Do you have any last words? And sometimes it's something bad. And he looks down to see what David says. And David looks up at him and he says this. Don't, <laughs> he said, don't worry, warden. It's going to be all right. He encouraged the warden. <laughs> don't worry, warden. It's going to be all right. And you're about to pump me full of toxins. They're going to kill me. I'm not going to judge that brother. He might judge me. <laughs> I mean, there there are miracles out there. I wish I could show you. God used the least of these to touch me again. 
Because the first time didn't work. It didn't mean I wasn't saved. I've been saved my whole time. And with all the foolishness I've been through, I promise you with all of my heart, I have never doubted my salvation. I knew he was with me. He wasn't done with me. I made it hard on him. It was ugly. But it wasn't enough because I needed another touch. You might need one. What's your one thing? The one thing that would set you free? If he touched it and got your attention and he said, all right, now this one's going to hurt. I'm going to touch it again. I need you to forgive that brother that you won't forgive. I need you to forgive that spouse. I need you to forgive that child. Forgive that parent. Forgive that boss, that brother, that sister. I need you to let go of that bitter root. And you don't want to because you, you, you own it. It's become a part of you. You don't know what they did to me. Or maybe it's some sort of habit or addiction that still got you wrapped up. And you're saved, man. You are saved. You have the Holy Spirit, but it's still got a hold of you. For me, my one thing was my marriage. I traveled the world and I left her behind. And I had sophisticated reasons why I didn't do the things that she wanted me to do. I'm damaged goods. You know, I have a hard time with intimacy. She wanted me to go shopping with her. I just don't like doing that. And she wanted to go on walks all the time. And I'm like, okay, but I don't have time. Gardening together. Just all the things that a woman wants her her king and queen to, to do together. I was so busy. I was trying to save the whole world. And my flower was starting to wilt. And I thought, this is so complicated. How am I ever going to get to the way where I can be close to somebody like this? And then it was like the scales fell from my eyes and I saw her and I loved her. Do you know today, if I had to pick one miracle out of all these crazy miracles in a book, it's my marriage. We go shopping together. We take walks together every day. We garden together. We take baths together. We play games together. I finally got what I craved and it was a true partner. An intimacy that wasn't supposed to come to a dude like me. Tonight, I want to give you hope. I want you to feel me tonight. Man, God's got so much more. Those brothers got baptized for themselves, and they set something on fire, and now kids are holding roots and throwing up peace signs instead of gang signs. What's your one thing? Don't waste your pain. Don't waste the last six days of this. Do like Steve. Do it again, but dig deep. You might as well. It'll set you free. Joy hides in my pain. If I go into my pain, my joy is released, and then that's repentance. And my wife deserved repentance, and she deserves me to treat her like a queen. She has earned it. And I found out, you know what, it wasn't too complicated. It wasn't that I was damaged goods. It turns out that I was selfish and I was lazy. And I figured out that that wasn't so complicated after all. (laughs) I think I could deal with selfish and lazy. I thought I was twisted and confused and sophisticated, you know, damaged. It's like (laughs) spirit said, no, you just need to love her. Watch what happens when you love her. Whatever we pay attention to comes alive. And whatever we neglect leaves us. Embrace your pain. Go to war on that one thing, but love it. 
love it. And it will set you free, and you'll be able to see. And even when we're in the battle, because this hadn't been an easy ride here. I've, I've been going through the battle all 40 days of y'all, man. It's been a fight. I'm talking about fight. So I don't want to ever do think that, yeah, I got this figured out. I'm in a fight, heavyweight. But you know what? When I'm weak, he is strong. Tonight, I've been weak. <laughs> I cry a lot, you know, but I love him to death. So, Steve, back at you, brother man. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.